1890, the U.S. Census Bureau made what, in hindsight, was a momentous announcement. On the face of it, it was simple. In that year, there was no place inside the continental United States where the population density was less than two persons per square mile. Since the close of the Civil War, hundreds upon thousands of people had moved westward, seeking new opportunities or a new start. Between 1865 and 1890, eight territories had met the standards set forth in the Northwest Ordinances and become new states in the Union. And if you stretch that timeline back just a year to 1864, Nevada could be added to that list. The previous year, 1889, saw a rush of 50,000-plus people into Oklahoma after the government bowed to pressure to open up what had been Amerindian territory. So the Census Bureau's pronouncement wasn't just some declaration about demographics. It was, in fact, the official announcement that there was no discernible distinction between settled places and what had been wilderness. In other words, the frontier was now closed. Except not every place was necessarily considered settled. Utah wouldn't join the Union until 1896, and Oklahoma wouldn't be admitted as a state until 1907. Then there were New Mexico and Arizona, both of which would have to wait until 1912 before the rest of the country let them join as full-fledged states. So while the Census Bureau might have declared the act of settling over and done with, for those living in the Southwest in the last decade of the 19th century, there was still plenty of work to do. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 131, Statehood and Free Silver. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our small pair of episodes exploring law and lawlessness in the Arizona Territory, though believe me, we'll have much more to say on that subject as we move forward. But for now, I want to circle back around to something we haven't touched on since episode 116, namely territorial politics. When last we spoke on this subject, two important things had happened. First, the hungry bear that was Phoenix grabbed the territorial capital from Prescott. Second, Governor Conrad Zulick had been ousted by incoming President Benjamin Harrison because, well, Harrison was a Republican and Zulick was incredibly not. But before we get into Zulick's replacements, and warning there will be a string of them, I want to dwell on the greater political environment of the time. As historian Howard L. Lamar puts it, by the dawn of the 1890s, the frontier had been settled, Arizona was joining the greater industrialized economy, and they no longer had to worry about Apache attacks. Instead, it was time to wade into the issues being bandied about nationwide. Prohibition, trust-busting, freighting rates, and the burgeoning populist movement. At this point in Arizona history, however, there were two larger issues that every local politician, no matter their party, was taking a pro-stance on. Statehood and silver. 
Now, these two things are actually fairly intertwined, with Arizona's stance on silver playing into its various bids to grow up and become a real state. So we're going to tackle them more or less together. The idea of becoming a state is not a new thing, as it was pretty much a foregone conclusion when the territory was formed that it would one day apply to become a member of the Union. The distinction between being a state and being a territory is one of home rule. As a state, you have a voter-approved constitution and leaders that are popularly elected. As a territory, your top officials are appointed by the president and your laws have to be approved by Congress. You also don't have a vote in Congress, and you can't cast a vote for president. As one former governor would write in 1893, quote, A territory is vassalage. A state is inequality. A territory is a child under tutelage. A state is a full-grown man with no master. End quote. So, early state historian James H. McClintock tells us that as far back as 1872, less than a decade after the territory formed and when it had maybe 12,000 people, Congressional Delegate and former Governor Richard C. McCormick was already talking about the statehood issue. There were a few other pushes over the next decade, such as by Grenville Owry in 1883, but all these went to the Congressional Committee on Territories and never came back around again. And in 1889, the omnibus bill that would eventually admit the Dakotas, Wyoming, and Washington into the Union also originally included Arizona. As the 1890s dawned and Arizona watched as its neighbors Utah and New Mexico tried to become states, the territory also decided it was time to join the club. To quote Lamar again, Peace, prosperity, a good population, and a slate of elected and business leaders who were boosters for the territory meant that people were psychologically ready to apply for statehood. To that end, the territorial legislature called for a constitutional convention of 42 members to meet in Phoenix the next year. But this was never carried out. However, in 1890, the legislature again called for a constitutional convention to convene in Phoenix. And Governor John N. Irwin picked up on this, calling for the election of 22 delegates from around the state. A fierce election later, and 17 Democrats and 5 Republicans, not to mention a veritable who's who of the leaders of the day, assembled in Phoenix in September 1891. And though the convention was definitely a partisan affair, it had the support of all the territory's leading men, regardless of party, because everyone was behind the idea of self-determination. This group worked quickly, and in less than a month, by the beginning of October, they had produced a constitution that they submitted for popular approval. And this constitution was... interesting. Tinged with the populism of the day, it took several stances, such as creating a weak legislature, along with slashing the number and salary of officials, in order to combat what it saw as the extravagance of the territorial legislature. It also called on Congress to fully survey and tax the land held by the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad. The Constitution also set up a free public school system and public lands to help fund them, but it then punted on the issue of women's suffrage by saying they could vote in school elections, but nowhere else, unless a popular referendum was approved to let them have the franchise. Speaking of voting, 
there was some serious fighting over whether to include a test oath before voting, where a man had to declare that he was not a polygamist, nor did he support polygamy. Predictably, this was aimed at the Mormon population in a bid by Republicans to ensure that this large voting bloc did not swing the state Democratic every single time. Though, in the end, this test oath was dropped. Then come the two big provisions that everyone points to in this Constitution. The first is the subject of water rights. Now, as far as I understand it, water rights were separated from land rights, unlike what we have today. Also, it seems to allow corporations and other big entities priority in water rights over the owners of any single piece of land. Then the other big issue was its stand on silver. Okay, now it's time to dive into the big deal of silver, which was as important as statehood itself. The issue was actually the wider movement known as bimetallism or free silver. Basically, people supporting free silver, or silver rights as they were called, wanted both silver and gold coins used to back money, with silver coins being struck with a fixed ratio to gold coins. Okay, I feel I want to stop and warn you that I squeaked by with a C in economics in college, so while I'll try to explain this the best I can, some of the nuances certainly do evade me. Free silver was championed by many in the West, and populace in particular, because it would actually cause inflation. That sounds weird to us, especially in 2023 as inflation is whacking us all about the head, but the idea here is that farmers would get more money for their crops, and they would have more money to pay back their loans. Meanwhile, the gold standard was championed by the great robber barons and other businessmen of the Gilded Age, who benefited the most from deflation and the repayment of loans in more valuable gold coins. Also, economists at the time worried that the gold coins would be pushed out of circulation by the more plentiful and cheaper silver ones. This issue was especially of concern after the Panic of 1893, which caused rampant deflation, high unemployment, and distress for farmers. If you have ever heard of William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech, it's actually referring to him arguing against going to the gold standard. Being in the West, having more than a few silver mines, and being influenced by populism, Arizona was solidly in the free silver camp. In fact, historian Jay Wagner writes that interest in free silver might have actually been more pressing than getting statehood to many Arizonans. But the two, in fact, were inextricably linked. For example, the Arizona Daily Citizen, the Republican newspaper in Tucson, ran an illustration showing an eagle holding a banner that read, Statehood and Free Silver Coinage. For weeks, the paper ran the Republicans' declaration for free silver and statehood together. So, when the territory called its Constitutional Convention in 1891, they inserted a clause that declared that gold and silver coins were on equal footing as legal tender for the paying off of debts and obligations contracted within Arizona. The next year, Arizona's delegate to Congress, Marcus Aurelius Smith, who we will also have much more cause to deal with in just a couple minutes, made a speech in the United States House of Representatives where he came out in favor of the free coinage of silver and gold at a fixed ratio. 
and this is a stance Smith would always espouse throughout his long career. I will add here, though, that both parties in Arizona were in favor of the silver standard. It didn't matter that Smith was a Democrat, while Arizona at the time had a Republican governor. Both of them were silverites, as was most everyone else in the territory. Even though there were some obvious problems with the Constitution, everyone was in such a fever pitch over the possibility of statehood that they asked the population to accept what they didn't like because, hey, we'll actually be a state afterward. That argument, plus the strong endorsement of free silver, were enough, and when the electorate went to the polls in December 1891, they voted for the Constitution by a large margin of 5,440 to 2,280. However, that was only half the battle. Because after the population accepts the proposed constitution, it's up to the U.S. Congress to accept the proposed new state. And now we have to look where Arizona would fit into the larger national political climate. In 1889 and 1890, Congress had let in six western states, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Washington. However, those Congresses had been overwhelmingly Republican, and wouldn't you know, the states they had let in were overwhelmingly Republican. But Arizona wasn't overwhelmingly Republican. In fact, it was kind of split between Democrats and Republicans, and its recently written constitution was pretty populist. In 1892, the Democrats had managed to take control of the House, but Republicans still controlled the Senate. When Mark Smith introduced the bill to make Arizona a state on March 14, 1892, it was received very well in the House, with thunderous applause breaking out when it passed in a 173-13 vote. However, when it was sent to the Senate Committee on Territories, it suffered a quiet, ignominious death. The reasons for this rejection were multiple, but here are some of the biggest salient details. First and foremost was the language in there about silver and gold coins being equally valued as legal tender to pay off debts and obligations. Now, that may sound all well and good, except it violated Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, that prohibits any state from passing laws that impair the obligation of contracts. Another factor hindering things is that Arizona's population was not booming as much as boosters would have hoped. In fact, the 1890 census showed that the population had dropped to 57,000 from an estimated 83,000 in 1883, something that one governor attributed to the exodus of miners after various strikes had dried up. This appears to have been a minor hiccup, as future tallies of the state's residents show it continuing to grow. Finally, there was the part of national politics in trying to balance Democrats and Republicans. With New Mexico also seeking to enter the Union, that meant two silver-producing regions, full of silverites, were bound to upset the apple cart that the gold backers had set up for themselves. Also, it was a question of which party would hold on to power if Arizona were to get seats in the House and the Senate. President Benjamin Harrison told Marcus Smith directly that Republicans were really, quote, opposed to the free coinage of Western senators, end quote. 
Though I should mention here that both parties at least gave lip service to the idea of admitting more states. In 1888, a plank of the Republican Party was for the swift admission of the territories of New Mexico, Wyoming, Idaho, and Arizona. But only two out of those four would actually be admitted in the next couple of years. Meanwhile, the Democrats said in 1892 that they were for the swift admission of all the remaining territories at the earliest practical date. And four years after that, in 1898, they loudly denounced the failure of the Republicans and the McKinley administration to admit those remaining three states. Still, undeterred by their loss in 1892, Arizona will try again the next year. In November 1893, another convention was called, with representatives attending from all but Yavapai, Mojave, and Coconino counties, which adopted a resolution to again petition Congress for statehood. This body also voted to send a delegation to Washington, headed by then-former Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy, to lobby in behalf of this goal. Murphy set out on this junket at once, stopping in New York with a large collection of photographs showing how productive, industrious, and beautiful the territory actually was. He was also interviewed by the New York Times, where he is quoted as saying, quote, The territory is fully ripe for statehood, and had it not been of the uncertainty which existed in the last Congress as to which political party could control it, I believe it would have been admitted at that session. End quote. When the paper followed up on that comment by asking which party would control Arizona, he responded, quote, It is doubtful territory. If it became a state, it would still be doubtful. For several years, a Democratic delegate to Congress has been chosen. I cannot tell whether it would elect Republican or Democratic senators if it were admitted. End quote. Though right after this, he goes on to comment on the free silver issue with, quote, The sentiment there is not so strongly for free coinage as in many parts of the West. Its mines produce more gold than silver. The output of gold last year was about $5 million. End quote. And I'm sorry, but that is straight up untrue. I can't tell if Murphy is just playing to the crowd or what, but Arizona had clearly put free coinage in its proposed constitution. Heck, one of the reasons the territory's population had accepted the constitution was because it had protections for free coinage. Also, there's no way that there was more gold than silver being mined in Arizona at this point. Still, he was promoting the territory and trying to make it look as irresistible to the Union as he could, so I guess we can forgive him for a little bit of untruth in the service to that cause? In December 1893, Smith again introduced a bill into the House to admit Arizona. All in all, conditions did look a little more favorable this time around. Since the last session, Democrats had taken control of both chambers, and the president, Grover Cleveland, was also a Democrat. This is the first time such a thing had happened since before the Civil War. And again, the bill simply sailed through the House, but again, it was dead on arrival in the Senate. Despite how things seemed, there were two major obstacles to Smith's bill getting through. The first was that Cleveland was backed by gold supporters, so they definitely weren't going to tolerate a new state that explicitly embraced bimetallism. And secondly was something of petty revenge on the part of the president. 
it appears that Smith and other leading Arizona Democrats had voted in favor of another candidate at the 1892 Democratic Convention that eventually nominated Cleveland. And it appears the now president had neither forgotten or forgiven this snub. And so Democrats in the Senate abandoned Smith's bill. While there would be more bills in coming years, a combination of the Panic of 1893, the Spanish-American War, the rise of the Populist Party, infighting among Arizona's Democrats, anti-Western attitudes in Congress, and similar mission efforts in New Mexico and Oklahoma would keep Arizona from ever getting close to statehood through the rest of the decade and the century. Arizona would become a state, but its day had not yet come. Now, I would like to take some time to examine one of the prime movers of the statehood movement, and really the closest thing Arizona had to a political boss. That is Marcus Aurelius Smith. We'll get more into this next episode, but Arizona's governors at this time were, with one exception, highly forgettable and mostly regrettable appointments that were changed with alarming frequency. But Smith was a constant in Arizona politics and was the face of the statehood push in Washington, D.C., so I want to spend some time fleshing him out. Born in Kentucky in 1852 to a prosperous farming and ranching family, Smith would attend Transylvania University in Lexington to study classics before deciding to enroll in their law school. After he graduated in 1876, at the top of his class I might add, he joined a local law firm and was elected prosecuting attorney. Following a year-long stint in that office, he then decided to head to San Francisco to try and use some family connections out there to launch a profitable career. However, the West Coast didn't really hold him that long because soon he decided to practice law in a place that desperately needed it. Tombstone, Arizona. In 1881, he became one of the first attorneys to be admitted to practice in the brand new Cochise County. Despite being physically small, he quickly became known for his charming southern accent and unmatched sense of humor. One resident of Tombstone recalled, quote, Everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. Everybody called him by his first name. End quote. The other side of his reputation, however, was his ferocity in the courtroom. Fearless, outspoken, and with an acidic wit, he became known throughout Cochise and Pima counties. As an example of his wit, once he was in court squaring off against a lawyer who was wont to go on long, ponderous discourses. During one such speech, in which he put most of the jury to sleep, the sound of a mule loudly braying came through an open window. Most in the court started laughing at this, while the lawyer started yelling even louder so he could continue his speech over all the noise being made by the mule. At this, Smith raised an objection, and when the judge asked him on what ground, Smith said, quote, I object to two attorneys arguing a case in court simultaneously, end quote. Based on his prowess at the law, he easily won the nomination to be Cochise County's district attorney in 1882. A dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, Smith's interest in politics only continued, and by 1886, his name was being tossed around for delegate to Congress, and he managed to grab the Democratic nomination and then the seat itself. During this initial stint in Congress, the New York Times would write of him, quote, A territorial delegate occupies the position of a small boy, 
who must be seen and not heard. Mark Smith was the sole exception. When the interests of his territory were involved, the genial, drawing, storytelling tongue turned into an engine of war. End quote. And it's from this seat that Smith would become a powerhouse. He easily won re-election, and in the 24 years between 1888 and 1912, he would hold the office a total of seven times. In fact, only two other people would be elected delegate during that time frame. I didn't bother mentioning this last week, but while in Arizona in 1889, Smith would actually take part in the proceedings of the notorious Wom payroll robbery. Smith was the man hired to defend Gilbert Webb and the others, a task at which he excelled. He used some of his savvy to paint Major Wom into a trap by asking if he could recognize the coins stolen if he were to see them. When Wom answered in the affirmative, Smith proceeded to ask him to separate the gold coins from the robbery from those borrowed from a local bank. When Wom couldn't do it, it went a long way to destroying his credibility. You might remember from last week that he managed to play to the sympathies of the local jury and painted the prosecution as being the man who was trying to oppress them all. He even enraged the judge with some of his anti-court rhetoric to the point that the judge was about to fine him $500 unless he backed down and made a retraction. Smith's ultimately successful defense of Webb and the other accused robbers actually garnered him a healthy dose of criticism, as more than a few papers found it odd that he was actively squaring off against the same government that was paying him $5,000 a year to be a congressional delegate. The Arizona Republican newspaper even ran a large photo of Smith and the defendants on its front page, asking the rhetorical question, which is Mark Smith and which are the Wom robbers? His defense of Webb and the others also brought up the question of where Smith stood via v the Mormons, though as we mentioned last week, only one of the accused was an actual active member of the church. Like any great politician, he appeared to flip-flop on this hot potato of an issue. In Tucson, he is reported to have said that he abhorred the teachings of Mormonism as much as any man could, but that he believed in fair play for them. However, when in Graham County, the local Mormon stake president presented him to his congregations as, quote, the Mormon savior and the expounder of the word before Congress, end quote. In his next election, Smith would go on to capture more than 90% of the Mormon vote, which probably did not alleviate fears of the almighty Mormon voting bloc. Smith was, predictably, one of the delegates chosen for the Constitutional Convention that convened in Phoenix in 1891, and, as we saw, championed the bill in Congress, including the provisions for bimetallism. He would make comments to the effect that excluding silver and using only gold was, quote, like amputating one leg of the runner in the heat of his struggle to reach the goal, end quote. I should also mention here that, like many of his contemporaries, Smith was firmly against the growing Indian rights movement, calling such sentiments, quote, sickening in the sight of dead friends in Arizona, end quote. He would thunder against the Apache scouts, characterizing them as being unfaithful and untrustworthy, and said that Indian schools were equally worthless, as the Indian needed to be taught to farm, not to read or write. When a representative from Massachusetts rose to rebuff his remarks, Smith's caustic wit was on full display again. 
The representative in question argued that many of the Indians had become baptized Christians and were therefore under God's protection. Smith retorted that he had no license to practice in the court of high heaven. He also went on to say that baptism was fine for the Apache, provided that the clergymen hold each under the water for ten minutes. While in office, he also argued fiercely against the creation of the public land-grant court, meant to sort out all the legal claims from the Mexican and Spanish eras. Smith believed that this court would serve only as a tool of giant land-grabbers and would steal land from small farmers. He would actually use this as a platform for his 1888 run for congressional delegate, and he would also use the ongoing saga of the Peralta land-grant as an argument in his favor. The Peralta Grant, and the man behind it, James Addison Rivas, is something that we are going to cover in the very near future, and I can't wait. As I said, Marcus Smith, or Octopus Smith as his opponents called him for his tight control of the Democratic Party, will be a major player in Arizona politics going into the early 20th century. Eventually, once Arizona finally gained its dream of statehood, Smith, the man who helped shepherd it there, was rewarded by becoming one of its first senators. To get the timing right, he was elected to a short one-year term, and then finally a full six-year term. And I will add one fun little tidbit during his first term as senator, when Smith proposed that the United States take a firm stand to protect its investments in Mexico including that it should seize Baja, California, to give the U.S. complete control over the Colorado River. Smith would be personally asked to run again in an open telegram sent by then-President Woodrow Wilson. And when Wilson went on to propose the League of Nations after World War I, Smith became an ardent supporter. He would eventually lose an election bid for his second full term in the Senate, a defeat that apparently embittered him. In his waning years, he was plagued both by a painful inflammation of the hip that caused him to need crutches, and from loneliness as it seems he had been deserted by most friends and had very few visitors. He would finally die on April 7, 1924, at the age of 73, and would be buried in his birthplace of Cynthiana, Kentucky. But that's still in the future for us. So join me next week as we watch Smith alternatively work with and cheese off a parade of territorial governors, each of whom would be hired and fired in quick succession. Each would try to leave their mark on what they hoped would eventually be the state of Arizona, but with variable degrees of success. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ the history of Arizona. Goodbye.